on today's episode of the Real Foodology podcast. You know, we moved to Boulder 21 years ago and had four children and it was my fourth child that had this allergic reaction. And it just made no sense to me because I was like, why are all these children allergic? And the the way the data had changed so quickly made no sense. And I thought, you know, genetics don't change this quickly. This isn't necessarily a generational thing. So what's going on in the environment? And, you know, ultimately landed on this question that um, was game changing and is, you know, are we allergic to food or what's been done to it? Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Real Foodology Podcast. I am your host, Courtney Swan, and I am so happy that you're here. Today's episode is particularly special to me. This woman is someone whose career I have followed for about 10 years now, and she is one of my idols. She she gave a TED Talk back in 2011, so 10 years ago now. And what she said really opened my eyes and lit a fire under my ass. Her work has really shaped my career and my passion and my drive in all that I do in the last 10 years because she has really revealed a lot about what is going on and what's happening in our food industry today. Her name is Robin O'Brien. You may recognize her from the TED Talk that she gave 10 years ago. If you have not seen this TED Talk yet, I'm linking it in the show notes. I highly recommend watching it. It is so amazing. And it really does open your eyes to what is going on with our food right now. She is the co-founder of Replant Capital. With a 20-year career in food and finance, Robin has been called the food's Aaron Brockovich by the New York Times and Bloomberg. She triggered an allergic reaction in the food industry when she asked, are we allergic to food or what's been done to it? It all started one day. It was a very personal story for her. It all started at the breakfast table. She has four children And over Ego Waffles, one of her kids went into anaphylactic shock. And thankfully, her child survived, but it caused her to really start digging into our food industry. And she wanted to understand why all of a sudden we're seeing such a rise in children's food allergies when we didn't see this 20 years ago. And what she found was pretty shocking. The introduction of genetically modified foods that were really done under our noses, no one was really made aware of it. We just started to put genetically modified proteins into our food system without having any long-term safety data. And when you introduce a new protein like that, that our bodies have never ingested before, of course, you're going to have reactions. The early years of her work are documented in her bestseller book, The Unhealthy Truth. She became recognized around the world after that TED Talk that she gave in 2011, which was viewed by millions and translated into multiple languages. She is a trusted and sought-after food industry advisor, strategist, and public speaker. She's also an adjunct professor at Rice's University's business school. I am just in constant awe of the knowledge that this woman brings to the conversation, and she has so much love and compassion and really gives me a lot of hope about the state of our food food industry and where we're headed. So I am just so delighted for you guys to hear this episode. We've made a lot of changes to our food in the last 20 to 30 years as we were learning. But you know what one of the biggest, most detrimental changes that we made to our food supply was the introduction of glyphosate or otherwise known as Roundup. You may know that as something that people spray on their lawns, on their weeds, You may not know that this compound glyphosate, which is also an herbicide, um, is also being sprayed on our food supply and very heavily as well. Legally, um, if your food is labeled organic, you are not allowed to spray. It's not allowed to be sprayed with glyphosate. However, uh, we have so many non-organic farms now that are being sprayed with glyphosate. And some of the most, uh, the worst offenders would be wheat, corn, and soy, And we have so many farms now that are spraying it that there is runoff, and it's running off, unfortunately, into our water supply. It's also running off into organic farms. And now organic food is also showing up with residue, with traces of glyphosate. Now, why should we care? Why should we pay attention to this? Well, the World Health Organization actually is now calling glyphosate a probable human carcinogen, not to mention the company that developed glyphosate is now in uh, billions of dollars worth of litigation because farmers are suing them because of the cancer that they got from using this product. Now I'm getting to a point here. The reason that I love Organifi so much, it's one of my favorite brands. I love working with this brand so much because not only do I really love their products, do they taste really good? They're super high quality. They're organic. 
all really low in sugar or no sugar at all, depending on the product that you get. But they also do a glyphosate-free residue labeling, which means that they test and make sure that none of their products have glyphosate in them, which is huge. So they go above and beyond just the organic labeling. We know for sure that their products do not have glyphosate in it. And that's one of the driving forces for me to consume organic food. So knowing that I'm not only consuming organic, but knowing that I'm also not getting a side, a side of glyphosate with it is really comforting for me. And if you follow my Instagram, you know that I love to drink green juice every single day. So I would say the Organifi green juice is my favorite. And then my second favorite is their gold. Gold is a relaxation powder drink that uh, you can drink before bed. Or I like to put it in my coffee in the morning because it kind of helps mitigate the like coffee jitters. It just helps calm me, relax my, my nervous system. And gold actually is coming out in a fall limited edition flavor, pumpkin spice. It is so damn good. I've been, I've been putting it in my coffee every single morning and I'm obsessed. The regular gold is also really good. It just has like a nice vanilla flavor. They both are sweetened with monk fruit, so there's no sugar in them. And then the green juice is just like an organic green juice. It's a great, easy, simple way to get your greens in every single day. I really hope that you love Organifi as much as I do. Please write me on Instagram and let me know if you're enjoying it. And also make sure that you go to Organifi.com slash realfoodology. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash realfoodology, O-L-O-G-Y. And make sure that you use code realfoodology at checkout and you're also going to save 20%. And with that, let's get to Robin. Robin, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, For everyone listening who is unaware of your work, can you explain a little bit about what you do within the food industry? Yeah, I've spent the last 15 years really um, advocating and pushing for change in the food industry to really elevate uh, the standards here in the U.S. so that we have higher integrity products on shelf the way they do in other countries around the world. And the reason for that is that because I learned, you know, over a decade ago that our big multinational food companies formulate products differently here in the U.S. with cheaper artificial ingredients, and they formulate their products better um, with higher integrity ingredients overseas. And that double standard to me was just intolerable. So early in my career, there was a lot of advocacy around that. Then I was engaged by those very multinationals to say, hey, you know, help us think about our product portfolio and how we can redesign things. And then most recently, I am a co-founder and managing director at Replant Capital, where we're actually working on the supply chain because that's ultimately the bottleneck. And where I landed after working with these companies for the last several years was, you know, they were with us and they understand that they need to transition their products, but the supply chain isn't there. And so the math doesn't work. And if the math doesn't work, it's impossible no matter what. So how do you get the math to work? And in the U.S., the crazy part is only 1% of our farmland is organic, only 1%. And I guarantee every person listening to this podcast has at least had one thing in their fridge that's organic. And so that that tension and that math, um, that's the opportunity is how do we actually convert our farmland at scale so that anyone who wants organic and better for you products can afford them and that they're accessible everywhere. And that's the goal. Yeah, I mean, you just nailed it on the head. That is absolutely the goal. And I, I found that a lot of people don't really have any sort of concept of what we are actually doing to our food. Um, and I would bet a lot of money that the majority of people, if they really understood what was actually happening into our food supply, how our food has grown, what we're doing to our animals, they wouldn't be buying this food. And I just want to say right now, thank you so much for this work that you've been doing. Honestly, your work and what you've discovered um, over the last, I'm trying to think, I'm, I think I probably found you maybe like six years ago has really shaped my career. And you've been such like a, a mentor from afar because I just, I watch what you're doing and it's so incredible. And it's so, so needed because so many people are in dark, in the dark, what's really happening. Yeah. And I mean, when I got into it, you know, most people that were advocating in this space were using like fear, you know, to just terrify people and as if that was going to create change. And for most of us, you know, that doesn't really work. You can maybe do it for a little bit and then you just shut down because you can't listen anymore when someone's trying to leverage you in that capacity. And I thought, you know, what actually works? And I studied different people that were advocating for change in different arenas and different spaces. I studied, you know, Al Gore and what he was trying to accomplish with climate. And while his data was there, 
his solutions were just minimal. And I thought, this is so disempowering and you've got to empower people or else you're just going to give up and be totally despondent. So I thought, okay, I'll take that lesson from him. And then I studied Martin Luther King and the way that he was advocating for civil rights. And I thought, you know, he used love. And that to me made so much sense because it was such an expansive, generous energy. And then I also studied Harvey Milk, um, who was advocating for gay rights and equal rights. And he used gratitude and thanking people for their time. And so I sort of blended all of that together and thought you've got to provide real tangible solutions and you've got to share this message with love and gratitude. And I've always held it that way, that even though it's impossibly hard to learn that like, yes, we have absolutely trashed our farmland. We have trashed our food products. It's way too much processed stuff that our body no longer recognizes as food. And we've been there and we've all probably done it. And it's a terrible feeling to realize, oh my gosh, this is what we've done. However, you know, then you can pivot and say, there's so much that you can actually do. And you can do it at your own tempo and your own pace. You can take baby steps. You know, you can learn how you can participate in the change if you want to. If you don't, you don't have to. What's really exciting, I think, is how many people are participating. And you're a great example of that. I love the stories of people that are like, you inspired me to do this. And I think ultimately that was my goal because I, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. You know, I knew we needed just an absolute enormous number of people coming into this and leveraging all of their time and different talents. And so it always makes me really happy to hear somebody who's like, yeah, I'm totally in and this is how we're doing it. So thank you back at you for your work. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something I'm, I'm very passionate about because, you know, as I started diving into this and really learning about what we're doing to our food, I mean, um, I can very much resonate with your story that I've heard you say, where I was just like, I can't unhear this. Like I have to um, find some sort of way, some sort of platform to speak about this because so many people are in the dark and so many are being affected by it. And we have viable solutions for it as well. So let's talk about this a little bit. Um, I want to go into the solutions afterwards because I always love to provide people. I don't want to just like throw all this information and then be like, we're effed. You know, I want to provide them with real solutions. But for people listening that are kind of unaware of what's really happening, what, how is our food system? I mean, I refer to it a lot as like broken. Like what are some examples of what is happening right now? You know, I mean, I would say it was designed this way. So, you know, it's broken from the sense that it's breaking our health, but but the design of the food system by these agrochemical giants and the banks that finance them was very intentional. So, you know, for them, they were like, hey, we've got an extractive food system. And what that means is profit and margins at all costs. And they were able to externalize that cost. And what I'm talking about there is that, you know, you can pump a bunch of artificial ingredients into food and it is way cheaper to produce. And so for shareholders, that's a great deal, you know, but for those of us that are eating this day in and day out, it's not so much. And what science has disclosed in the last 20, 30 years is, you know, this really is impacting our health. It's pretty obvious that it's impacting our health, but for a lot of people, they needed the science. And, you know, the thing that to me was just intolerable was when I learned that our big food companies were formulating the products differently in other countries, and they were making things with real ingredients. It wasn't the same shareholder pressure. That higher integrity product was demanded, not just by the consumer, but also by the regulators. And so here in the U.S., we got, you know, we're all pretty familiar of how much influence policy and money, you know, can have um, in a pretty powerful way. And we've seen that in the tobacco industry, the way the tobacco industry was really able to influence policy and legislation. We've seen it in the oil and gas industry, how they've been able to influence policy and legislation. And we've seen it in food. So the food industry has wielded enormous power with policymakers in order to keep the system in this status quo that benefits them financially. However, now those costs have been externalized on us because you go around the room and everybody's dealing with somebody that's got cancer or diabetes or Alzheimer's or autism or allergies or autoimmune issues. I mean, none of us have gotten out of this unscathed. And it's been pretty interesting to sort of have that awakening. It's, it's heartache in my opinion, but I also knew it was why eventually this would come to light because the data and statistics around the health of our families is just too, is too compelling, you know, that this is actually happening. And it's been driving this food awakening. And so, you know, early in, in my work, there was pushback for sure by some of these multinationals and they were pretty aggressive. And there were moments, days, months, almost years that were pretty terrifying. And now we're in a place where, you know, they're saying, okay, how do we make the change? And it's much more collaborative. Um, the banks are still pretty entrenched because they benefit, you know, from this, this entrenched system. But what's interesting to me is the farmers now are stepping forward and saying, you know what, 
this system of genetically engineered ingredients and all these seeds and all these pesticides and all these chemicals that are used to grow them, it doesn't work for my family. And the reason it doesn't work is because the soil that my family now stands on is trashed. I'm carrying way too much debt to finance these genetically engineered seeds and chemicals. And then importantly, the kids don't want to step into that career. So we really have this legacy crisis. And, you know, people are like, well, what's changed? You know, why is it different this time? To me, that's why. Yeah, I mean, wow, you touched on so many interesting things. Um, I've been hearing this a lot about farmers that are really pushing back now. A lot of them are wanting to do regenerative farming. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the documentary Kiss the Ground. They followed this one farmer who for years lost 100% of his crops. And he was so much in debt that he was like, I'm never going to be able to repay this. And then he switched over to regenerative farming and now actually makes a profit. So... For people listening that are unaware of your background and how you really got into this, can you go a little bit into your background story about your um, your child and how you got into this whole? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it wasn't it wasn't anything that that I ever anticipated doing with my life, um, and so that's why I think I have so much compassion for people that find themselves suddenly standing at the starting line, staring something down that they never in a million years would have anticipated. Um, it requires a lot of grace and it requires a lot of flexibility and it requires um, being as kind to yourself as you would be to someone standing beside you going through it. So I would start there because there are plenty of opportunities where you fall down and have massive opportunities to learn, you know, as you navigate this. But for me, you know, my background was conservative. I went to business school on a full scholarship. I was recruited by the oil and gas industry, you know, so nothing environmental in my background, absolutely at all. Um, and I chose to go to work for an investment firm um, because, you know, I, 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 I used to joke, like I, I, I couldn't, nothing could hold my attention for long enough. And it was a perfect career because you got to meet with all these different management teams and all these different industries every single day. Today we have ADHD, which clearly defines, you know, what was going on in my brain when I was in my twenties, but we didn't have that term. And, um, so, you know, to me, it was, a, it was a perfect career because you got to hop around all of these different things and meet with all of these different people. And it was constantly changing. It was always interesting. And I loved it. And as the only woman on the team, I covered the food industry. So it was um, a really early way to learn the analytics of the industry. My heart wasn't involved at all, which I liked at the time. And then, you know, we moved to Boulder 21 years ago and had four children. And it was my fourth child that had this allergic reaction. And it just made no sense to me because I was like, why are all these children allergic? And the the way the data had changed so quickly made no sense. And I thought, you know, genetics don't change this quickly. This isn't necessarily a generational thing. So what's going on in the environment? And, you know, ultimately landed on this question that um, was game changing and is, you know, are we allergic to food or what's been done to it? And it was that early research, you know, really realizing that we had fundamentally changed the way that we grow food in this country. And that um, as we shifted to this genetically engineered operating system, farmers all of a sudden had to start paying for food. Uh, you know, an incredible portfolio of chemicals was required to treat the seeds and treat the crops as they grew. And I just thought, you know, what is this doing to us? And have other countries embraced it? And that was really the wake up call was when I realized that in a lot of countries, these crops were not yet embraced, especially for human food. And then if they had been used in other countries, they were labeled and there was a transparency that was brought to the consumer. And that was a pretty sickening discovery, you know, to realize that we had completely fundamentally changed the way that we produce food and no one had told us. So um, I thought, you know, what else has changed? And there's quite a lot, you know, in our dairy, we introduced um, artificial growth hormones to help cows make more milk more quickly. You know, economically, that makes a ton of sense, but for the health of our families, it doesn't. Um, that, that genetically engineered product um, that was injected into cows to help them make more milk um, ended up with the cows having cysts and ovarian cysts and all these different, you know, issues and health issues. And so most developed countries around the world said, no, thank you. We don't want that in our milk and our cheese and our dairy. And yet we embraced it here. So, you know, learning, the learning part of this journey was incredibly hard. Um, and also, you know, people looked at you like, there's no way this is possible. We would have been told, you know? And so here I was like an early, early whistleblower saying this actually happened. And I mean, people looked at you like, you have got to be crazy. There's no way this has happened. And, you know, I kept, 
I had to keep head down and say, this has actually happened. Um, and as I continued to advocate for it, you know, the press started to pick up on it a little bit and the New York Times ran a piece that was really intended as a hit piece. Um, and I mean, when it hit online the night before it was going to publish, you know, and land on people's doorsteps, I remember just sobbing and just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, they have absolutely tried to just shoot the messenger here. What do I do? So I stayed up all night really going through the website that I had at the time for allergy kids and just making it as unemotional and data-driven as possible. I stayed up the entire night. And I think I went to bed at like five and woke up at seven. And when I woke up at seven, every major publishing house had contacted me and they wanted to know the story. They wanted to understand what was happening. So I flew out to New York. Um, you know, the whole process of writing a book is in and of itself its own business model. And I flew out to New York to meet with these different publishing houses. And I remember it was Random House, this this group of women, it was all women in the meeting sitting around, sitting around this table. And they were just like, this is unbelievable that this has happened. And I said, I know. And, um, and so, you know, we moved forward with Random House. We actually signed the deal on Valentine's Day and released the book on Mother's Day a year later. But in the middle of that, Wall Street blew up and Lehman Brothers happened and there was a massive meltdown and New York laid off, you know, an enormous amount of people. And I remember thinking, they're going to cut the book. You know, this is a risky title and they're going to cut the book. And so I got on a plane and I flew to New York and I just said, people believed in our financial system until it's been proven faulty. And people have believed in our food system, which is about to be proven faulty. So this is actually a parallel that we'll be able to use. And every woman sitting around that table was frozen. And then two days later, I got home and the following week, the manuscript came back and we kept going. So, you know, it really has been um, a journey, I would say, love and courage all the way through. Um, there have been an enormous amount of naysayers and, um, you know, naysayers are generally the people that can't do. So, you know, you, you sort of nod and, and you put your head down and you keep going. Um, and so, you know, then it began a lot of high level consulting with the food industry as they began to read the book. And, you know, this TED talk came out a couple years later. Um, the TED talk moment was a terrifying one. And now that thing's been translated into dozens of language and viewed by millions of people. And it's still a tool today, which is pretty amazing to me. And I always love it when I get an email that's like, hey, I know I'm late to the party, but I just watched your TED talk. And um, it holds because, you know, again, this double standard it's not suddenly going to disappear. Um, but thankfully, you know, the big companies are really transitioning. And I think, you know, a lot of them, it's personal. They've got kids with food allergies or a parent with cancer, or, you know, husband that's sick. And, and so they're transitioning. And that to me is the invitation is on our watch. Let's fix this. When I was younger, I used to struggle with fatigue. And I think there was a combination of things going on. One of them being that I was vegetarian. Um, that was a huge component of it. But also, I wasn't supplementing at all. I had no idea what was going on in my body specifically. Now, years later, I have the insight to know to check that. So I get lab work done at least once a year. I try to do it twice a year. I highly recommend everyone doing that just so you can see where all your levels are. And I also take bio-individualized vitamins. This is just another way for me to keep track of what is going on specifically in my body. You do the first initial hair analysis test with them, which means you send in a clip of your hair, they do an analysis on it, and they tell you if you have any heavy metal toxicities, they tell you what your metabolic state is in, if you have any vitamin or mineral deficiencies, and then they recommend vitamins based on what is going on in your body and what they find. But what's cool about it is that you can continue to do these tests. So I send in my hair probably like twice a year. I know not everyone can afford that, but I also have a little code for you that's going to save you some money if you do want to do that more than once a year. But I do recommend at least doing it once a year because our levels are constantly changing depending on our environment, depending on our diet. There's so many different factors, stress, or if we get exposed to some heavy metals, whatever it is. So it's good to keep on track with that. So if you want to try Honed Vitamins today, they were previously called Paragon. So if you're a little confused, they have now rebranded to Honed. Go to livehoned.com. That's L-I-V-E-H-O-N-E-D.com. Use code REALFOOD15. You're going to save 15% off the hair analysis. I really hope that you enjoy them. Please write me on Instagram and let me know how you're feeling on your new Honed Vitamins. Yeah, I mean, my heart just goes out to you and every parent. I mean, I feel like I've been, you know, paying attention to this for the last like eight years where, you know, I always use this example when I was a kid and I was in school, it was unheard of that people had nut allergies. I, I didn't know of a single one. 
And then fast forward to, I was a nanny a couple of years ago. And I remember, um, you know, I would make food for the kids every day and I was not allowed to put any nuts in it because there were so many kids that were in their preschool and kindergarten that had nut allergies that they had to ban them. Right. And I started looking into this because I felt similarly as to you where I was like, okay, but why? I'm always asking, but why? Like, I want to know, like, why is this becoming such an issue? Like, why now are all these kids? And and it happened in such a small, short span. Right, 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 right. I mean, because, you know, for most of us, you know, you had a PB&J and a carton of milk and those weren't loaded weapons on a lunchroom table. And now that would be an impossible thing. And I think back to, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, every fridge would have just had either high fat milk or low fat milk. That was the variation, you know, and today we've got oat milk and almond milk and soy milk and rice milk and cashew. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing what we have today and clearly speaks to something being fundamentally wrong and changed in a short period of time, you know? And so I think if we can, if you can change it that quickly, then, you know, then you can change it back. Um, But it does require policy. And I think what happened was that, um, the policymakers early on were really influenced by these multinational chemical companies to the point where, you know, when this artificial growth hormone was introduced into the dairy, the woman that had written the report for the company, for the chemical company making it, ended up inside the FDA reviewing her own report, which is unheard of. You know, I can't, I mean, now with social media, imagine if that happened today, people would just be like, no way, get out, you know, yeah. but this was before the dawn of social media. And I often say, thank goodness, you know, for social media, because it allows us to share information a lot more efficiently. Yeah. Well, but I will say though, I mean, I was just reading recently, like there is seemingly a revolving door between like the FDA, big pharma, um, all these regulating companies and then big food as well. You know, I'll read about these like big food execs that then go to the FDA or the USDA or whatever. And then they're essentially like, Riding yep. in these policies and allowing, you know, like their own food in through the door, which is really frightening. And, you know, I want to bring up something because I feel like um, this is not addressed enough. And you said this in your TED talk, actually, that the U.S. spends more in healthcare than any other country on the planet. This blew me away. Like, I knew this, but you said something else that I was like, oh my God, I'd never even thought about this. Um, so, 16%, and I'm wondering now if this has changed, if it's gone up. But 16% of our GDP goes towards managing disease. And Starbucks, so this means that Starbucks spends more money on their health care than they do on coffee, which is absurd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, the numbers, the statistics are terrifying. And I think, you know, statistics on cancer alone are terrifying. And cancer, to me, one of the statistics that I found just, um, I mean, it was a crippling moment. It was just absolutely suffocatingly horrible pit pit of the stomach moment was learning that cancer is the leading cause of death by disease in American children. And I thought they have not even been on the planet for long enough. You know, what is happening here? I actually just came from a lunch with a guy and he said, you know, our generation, people that were born in the, in the seventies basically like got it the worst because, you know, it was, it was the introduction of all of these chemicals and, through that introduction, you know, like we just, we were just these guinea pigs through it all. So, you know, what's interesting to me is sort of the detox side of that, you know, and the way that people are trying to better understand, you know, is there a way to really begin to like change things around? And I think, you know, as somebody that grew up in Texas eating meat with every meal and every snack and, and, and every, every time we sat down, you know, the thought of like having a meatless meal was just wild. Like you just didn't do it, you know? And I've seen in my own health over the years, you know, through these modifications and changes over the years and, you know, just these, just these adjustments, you know, to where it's like, oh, this feels better internally for me, you know, to be doing this. Um, it is pretty remarkable what you can change. And so, um, you know, it's, it's definitely something that um, you can participate in and it doesn't need to be perfect. You know, I always say, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Um, but the healthcare costs in this country are out of control. And, you know, we have a for-profit healthcare system, which means sickness sells. So, you know, if we're sick, you know, that's keeping the revenue and the lights going for these, you know, big pharmaceutical companies. They don't necessarily have prevention built into their models. So we as individuals, 
that's the opportunity is how can we exercise prevention? You know, what can we be doing? And, you know, thankfully there is a lot that we can be doing, but unfortunately it, it's, a, it's unaffordable to a lot of people. And that to me wasn't a solution. So to really come back to, you know, how do we do this at scale? How can we go from 1% of our farmland is organic to 85% of our farmland is organic because 85% of consumers are trying organic. So how do you get that to align um, more efficiently. And um, that's really working with these farmers and working with the supply chains of these big companies to, to finance that transition. Because then the math works for all of us. And, you know, ultimately that's in the best interest of our country because you just think about the economic impact of being so sick or the loss of productivity or how it's impacting, you know, families and companies. Everybody is impacted by this. And, you know, really at a point where it's like, okay, you know, we can exercise precaution. Um, and thankfully the food industry, I think is really stepping into that and they're playing a really amazing role. And then entrepreneurs are playing an amazing role. Um, and it's really, it's an exciting time. You know, the more that we, the more that we learn and the more that we unlearn, the more that we can fix this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm with you on that. I'm, I'm definitely, um, I'm very positive that we will be able to turn this around it's just in the interim right now. And also, you know, just learning all these facts and knowing that we have been eating food that has been messed with, tainted, however you want to say for the last, I don't even know, it's been like 30 years. It's really, the thing that really made me the most mad, and you mentioned this briefly, but I want to um, give an example because I'm not sure a lot of people know this. So when I found this out, I was furious. Um, Europe, for example, actually most other countries outside of the U.S. do not allow, they have a lot of regulations about food and what they're allowed to have in their food, what they're allowed to spray on their food, what the farmers can do with the food. And companies like Kraft, for example, so macaroni and cheese in Europe, the ingredients are different than they are in the U.S. because Europe has different regulations on the food. And when I found this out, it made me so mad because I was like, so now U.S. companies are knowingly doing this differently to Americans and they are Europeans, they know what they're doing and they also have the ability to create these products healthier and yeah. they're doing it for the countries, but they're not doing it for us. Yeah. I mean, that, it's infuriating. You know, that was, that was my point. It was like, we're not asking them to reinvent the wheel. They're already doing this. Like they know what they're doing and they're driving profitability on the backs of the American consumer. So, you know, and it's interesting, it extends well beyond the food industry. You know, there really are a lot of opportunities to clean it up. Um, and again, it's because in Europe, you know, there is a, there's a healthcare system where they have an incentive to exercise precaution. If their population were as, as sick as we are, you know, it would explode in terms of taxes, but because it's privatized here, we pay those costs. And so, you know, you hear stories. I mean, we're seeing these GoFundMe's across social media where families are just bankrupt because they can't afford the treatments that are required. Or the EpiPen thing, you know, when the price of those things shot up to like six or $700. I mean, it is criminal that that is happening, you know, for a life-saving medication for children that in Europe costs $70. I mean, it is absolutely criminal. So that double standard is intolerable. And I think, you know, the more noise and more transparency around that, the better. But ultimately, it does get down to policy because our policy has enabled this. And in, in Europe, the policy disables it. And that's the difference. Yeah. Okay. So now that we know all of this, what is the solution? Obviously we need these policies to change, but I will say that this is when I get a little bit, um, I don't know. I just get concerned because I'm like, it seems like we're so far down this one direction and there's so much money to be made. And alternatively, there's so much money to be lost by these uh -huh. companies by um, changing the way that they produce our food. So how do we get to a point where we can start re making real changes with those policies? Yeah. I mean, I think we're sort of at that point because the soil health has suffered to such a large extent that farmers are really struggling to maintain crops on farm because the soil has been so overly treated with these chemicals that it, that it can no longer hold the nutrients and it can no longer hold what it's designed to hold in order to grow. And so, you know, if soil can't hold the water 
it's going to be really tough to grow something in that soil. And that's what we've done. We've treated soil with so many chemicals to the point where it is no longer a live functioning thing and it can't hold this water. And farmers really are now starting to make noise. And I think that is game changing, you know, to have the farmers actually leading a lot of this conversation. Um, and then as consumers, you know, it's really thinking about food security and water security. Those are the two things. So what can we be doing to ensure that, you know, with COVID, it exposed a food system that was just frail and vulnerable and, you know, full of middlemen. And we realized, you know, we don't need to have all these middlemen. And a lot of the farmers were saying, instead of being at the beck and whim of all these different middlemen, what happens if I go directly to the consumer and set up an e-commerce site? So, you know, we're starting to see that shift. So it's really a lot of these middlemen were put into these systems clearly to just make money and take these transaction costs along the way. Um, and farmers and consumers are saying, you know, it is better if I could just buy directly. I had a friend in Texas that decided to buy half a cow for her husband for uh, his birthday. And then she realized, like, where do you put half a cow? It doesn't actually fit in my normal refrigerator. So she had to buy like this freezer, you know, for, for, for the cow and all of the different pieces and cuts and everything. But, you know, I think we're on a very vertical learning curve and, um, you know, it's again, engaging where you want to. So if it's community gardens, awesome. If it's school lunches, great. If it's just planting something for yourself, great. But don't be afraid to start small, but do start. You know, I think what we need to be afraid of is stagnation um, because that is really a dangerous place. If we stay where we are, you know, it's, it's a dangerous place. So, you know, how can you get involved? And like you said, I mean, Kiss the Ground, Biggest Little Farm, there just been some amazing documentaries and films that have come forward. They're amazing films, um, Gather and others from, you know, Farmers of Color, BIPOC, Indigenous as well. And understandably, you know, farmers of color and black farmers and indigenous farmers are sort of, you know, annoyed that suddenly everybody's talking about regenerative because they never had access to the capital and the financing. So that, that method of farming is all they've ever known. So it's really honoring that wisdom and saying, you know what, we've got plenty of people who know how to do this, who can teach the rest of us and allowing that leadership to emerge from those communities to me is really important. Um, so, you know, there really are so many different ways to engage. And then I do think making noise at the, you know, at these food companies, because ultimately they do have to consider what cons care and concern what the consumer wants. Um, it's interesting that grocery stores moved first because they scan everything through checkout and they're like, oh, consumers are wanting this and this and this. And all of a sudden the private labels, you know, at Kroger, like Simple Truth and these others um, exploded, you know, and they recognized there was an opportunity to meet the need of the 21st century consumer. So um, it really is going to require everyone. You know, we have all inherited this broken system, which means, you know, we can all play a role in fixing it. And I would hope that within a generation, you know, we've really corrected a lot of um, the harm that has been done. Yeah, I hope so too. And I think um, a lot of it is uh, dependent on people having conversations like this, like, you know, people listening to this podcast and sharing this with their family and their friends and letting them know that this is happening because I have found in my own life that the more, um, you know, I just, I educate my friends or let people know that this is actually happening. It really does drive people's spending habits. And like you said, I mean, we're seeing an explosion of organic. We're seeing all these companies that, I mean, even you can go to Walmart now and they sell a ton of organic stuff, which, you know, I mean, I feel like six or seven years ago, that was not even a thing at all. Right. What if I told you that there was a way to improve your cognitive function over time and improve your productivity without any sort of harsh side effects, without having to get a pharmaceutical prescription drug or have to reach for numerous cups of coffee every single day? Well, guess what? There is, and it's called Magic Mind. Magic Mind is the world's first productivity drink. I started drinking this a couple months ago, and I have truly seen a difference in the way that my brain functions, and I'm so much more productive during the day now that I take this. I wish I had found this years ago because it has really transformed the way that I work on a day-to-day -day basis. What it is is it's a little shot, and it has matcha green tea. It also has adaptogens and new tropics and just a little bit of honey, but there's not a ton of sugar. You know how I feel about sugar. And this blend of matcha green tea that gives you just a little bit of caffeine, which also has L-theanine in it, which helps to calm the nervous system. So you're not going to have a really jittery 
um, like you're feeling like you're jumping out of your skin kind of energy. It's just going to be a really calming, soothing energy. It also has cordyceps mushrooms, which are notorious for giving you a little bit of energy. But again, it's that kind of clean energy. There's also ashwagandha in there that really helps with stress and echinacea that boosts the immune system. And then there's also cytocholine, which also it helps oxygenate the brain so that you can, uh, so your brain can function better. I cannot speak highly enough of Magic Mind. I have a code that saves you 20% off. If you use code realfoodology at magicmind.co, you're going to save 20%. Please write me on Instagram. Let me know how you're loving it. I really hope that you love this product as much as I do. The word democratization of organic and making it affordable and accessible is so important. Um, Otherwise, it's not a solution. And it does get back to, you know, the federal government and the way they lend money out in these subsidies. And again, it's financing. So, you know, I'll say you can't fix a broken food system with a broken financial system. It's definitely been designed this way. Um, and certain very small uh, special interests have benefited, you know, and it's been on the backs of our farmers and it's been on the backs of our families. And I gave a talk probably about 10 years ago to big biotech conferences, all these farmers using these genetically engineered seeds. And by the end, they just all, you know, were leaning in because like you cited with Kraft, it was like, look, Kraft's doing this to all of us, you know, regardless of where we live and what we are, they've made a better, cleaner product for families in other countries. And they're loading our families with all this artificial stuff. And the farmers leaned in and they said, you know, what do you want us to do? And I said, you've got to tell the truth. When you're ready to tell the truth, tell the truth. And one farmer said, imagine if the farmers and the moms got together, you know, imagine what would happen then. And, you know, we finally, I think, are at that point where the farmers are leaning in. They're like, look, this doesn't work for me anymore. And the farmers that have transitioned, you know, I'll say, what's the greatest benefit you've seen? Thinking they're going to say, oh, my debt levels went down or, oh, you know, soil health, blah, blah, blah. They'll tell you their kids came back to the farm. And that's, that's the best thing they've seen. And, you know, that, that is food security. Yeah. Oh, that makes me so happy because I know that has been a a huge discussion and a concern and it's a concern. It should be concerning all of us because if we don't have, um, you know, farmers that are wanting to like younger generation of farmers that are wanting to get into it, then how are we going to grow our food? It's totally, totally, you know, we're relying on other countries for imports. You know, I asked, um, Applegate had committed to transitioning their livestock feed to non-GMO. And I said, where are you guys getting this? Because I knew we didn't grow enough here in the U.S. And they said, oh, we're importing it from like Russia and Uruguay and Romania and, you know, Australia and all these places. I was just like, it's insane, you know? So why aren't we growing the food that Americans actually want to eat? That is food security. That is national security. That's the language we all speak, you know? And then it's, it's financial security for our farmers. So, you know, to me, like, that's what's so much fun about where, where it stands right now. Like we are at the starting line of that. And that is such a win-win situation. It's going to be so powerful. You know, we're in the early innings of it now, but as this thing continues to grow, it's going to be so powerful. Yeah, that makes me really happy. And um, yeah, makes me less worried about the future because right now, I mean, you know, the, our, I, I see our biggest hurdle is getting over this mono um, crops, the monocrop agriculture that we face right now, which means that we have no diversity in our food supply. The majority of our food that's grown is, you know, corn, wheat, and soy that we know is now making us sick. And it's the majority of it's grown for our livestock anyways, but it makes them sick and then we eat them. And then a good reminder is that we eat what our food eats and, you know, it's all, um, I mean, how do we get, how do we get out of that? Because the biggest thing for me is the subsidies. How do we get to a point where we change the subsidies? Where we're, well, we're yeah, not- I mean, we've got mono cropping because we've got mono banking. You know, you look at how narrow the group is that's financing this and how homogenous that group is. And it's no wonder that it's all just mono cropping, mono banking, mono culture. And again, that's why at Replant, we thought, you know, we're a new financial services firm. It's like, how do we actually think about capital differently? Because capital is the first ingredient on any farm. It's the first ingredient in any food company. And there hasn't been any diversity there. So how can we actually tap different pools of capital to help finance this transition, whether it's philanthropic capital or different foundations? And thankfully, you know, there has been an enormous explosion of um, growth in capital and 426 billion is what our farmers carry in debt. 700 billion would be what would be required to transition U.S. farmland. And that's doable. You know, Mackenzie Scott, 
um, the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos from Amazon, you know, just in the last couple of years, her net worth has gone from 36 billion to 60 billion and she's committed to giving it all away. Imagine if we had more philanthropists like that, you know, where that makes a real impact, you know, as you can begin to transition farmland at scale. And as those farmers are successful, other farmers are going to follow. So, you know, for us, putting the farmer first, is the smartest financial move. It's the smartest move in terms of communications and marketing and strategy, because as that farmer is successful, others will follow. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, then we just, we need to keep, um, yeah, I don't know. We need more people like her financing this and making a huge shift. Um, I, I know regenerative farming is like a really important piece of this. Is that scalable? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's just transitioning from a chemical input model to a service model. So instead of using chemicals to manage the farm, you use consultants, you know, who come on farm and are like, oh, there's this. And so, you know, there's that opportunity, you know, and it's really exciting to me that I think probably one of the funnest areas right now is this technical assistance space where it's people that are on farm working with farmers to teach them how to transition from genetically engineered and all the chemicals to regenerative and organic. And that space is just lighting up with young people. And that gives me so much hope. And they're so much fun and they're so funny and they know how to leverage social media and they know how to leverage technology in a way that is game changing. So 10 years from now, like there are a couple of them right now and I'll introduce you to some so you can have them on the show because they're great. Um, But 10 years from now, I think we're going to look back and be like, oh my gosh, can you remember they're just like, handful of these guys and now we've got a whole industry and that's the transition is just going from this chemical input model to service oh yes okay i mean this makes me so excited i'm sure everyone listening is like thank god because you know it, it looks a little grim it's, it's it, yeah but it's when you look grim, i mean you know grim is just people trying to keep you locked in fear and, and paralyzed and they don't want you know when you're like that you're not about to take action you're just frozen yeah. And so, you know, a lot of the fear mongering, I think, is intentional, um, you know, because it protects the status quo. So, you know, yes, um, the fires are absolutely real and absolutely terrifying. And the water crisis to me is terrifying. You know, I don't think the water crisis has gotten enough airtime. It's starting to. Um, And so if we can farm in a way that is responsible to water as this precious asset that we know it to be, then we absolutely should be doing that. And thankfully different states, you know, have leadership that can really emerge there. And like we've seen in anything with food, you know, it's the state leadership that really, I think that really catalyzes the change. Amazing. So for people listening, uh, what are some resources if they're wanting to get more involved or they want to be more educated on what we're talking about? What are maybe some good like films, books, things like that that you can direct them to? Yeah. You know, I mean, there, thankfully, there are so many different resources. The Rodale Institute has been at this for a long time. Um, you know, the book that I wrote, you know, 12 years ago, The Unhealthy Truth, is still really sort of an encyclopedia on what's happened because, you know, it was sort of an analysis of how we got here in this double standard. And you can't rewrite that. You know, that is what it is. And a lot of people still, when they read that, are just shocked, you know, that this has really happened. And it does go into it in great detail. Um, But there are so many other amazing resources and books out there. And thankfully, you know, um, they continue. Anna LaPay and her mother, Frances Moore LaPay, were early voices in this. And um, her mom was speaking to this, you know, in the 60s. And then Anna has now come out with her own book. So she's another one. Um, And there really are amazing resources, different TED Talks, you know, have been given on the topic. I mean, Jamie Oliver's given one that's amazing. Um, There are different ones that have been given on the meat industry. Um, You know, and then Michael Pollan has sort of been this, like, philosopher and professor over the whole thing. But I think what's really important is that people understand the real tangible solutions and action items. And I think it's one thing to come from an academic place. It's another thing to be a mother of four that is just, you know, terrified and freaking out about, you know, what have I done? And that to me was the space that I could occupy was, you know, I understand, I understand that emotion and how overwhelming it can be and how we can all start to just take these baby steps to start to create change. And we don't do it all at once, but it's things like, you know, learning how to cut out diet soda, which was one of the things that I did, or learning how to cut out artificial colors or learning how to cut out, you know, this artificial growth hormone that's in our dairy. And it's just picking something that's close to you. That, that you feel matters the most and starting there and not trying to fix it all at once because that's probably a recipe for failure. So, you know, to just pick one thing and begin to create the changes and do it in a way that 
is empowering to you. Um, and then the films, you know, they continue Kiss the Grounds doing another film that's coming out soon. And The Biggest Little Farm is such a beautiful one that speaks to how we can work with Mother Nature instead of against her. Um, there are other films that are super terrifying and those are the ones that shut people down. So, you know, they're out there, you can find them. Um, but you know, I, those ones are just so incredibly depressing to me and depressing doesn't get you out of bed to take action. So I tend to lean much more towards the positive. Um, and then in every city, there are just amazing stories. You know, these farm to table restaurants or different people that are advocating for changes in the school lunch programs, you know, every city has these stories and um you know the black farming community is really getting really loud and it is it is it is incredible and powerful you know to really see those voices um and i do urge people to really listen there as well sylvanaqua farms is another you know chris newman and you know he is speaking truth every single day and so you know really make sure that when you're following these different platforms on social media or when you're reading these different books or films Make sure that you're not just reading the ones from white people because, you know, we tend to, you know, come from this one experience and that that is a shared experience that is food. And if you think about it, like the most beautiful food comes from these other countries and these other cultures and these other places. And it gives it the flavor and the vitality that we all love. So ensuring that those voices are represented in these conversations and in these decisions to me is, is critical. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, they play such vital roles in our in our food industry in general too, you know, growing and yeah. So that's yeah. really important. I'm so glad that you I'm so glad you pointed that out. Yeah. Um, well, for everyone listening, actually, well, before we do that, um, is there anything else that I haven't touched on that you want people to know about regarding our food, things they can do, things they need to know? I think it's just don't be afraid to start small. I mean, I cannot emphasize that enough. I started so small. The first talk I gave was six people, you know, and now there's thousands of people and all these things. And I never could have imagined it would get there. And you find courage as you go. Um, love really does make the impossible possible. I say that all the time. But as long as you're tapping into that as your source, um, it's an incredibly expansive source. And people meet that well. Um, and then I think, you know, do it with joy, like that we are still here with this opportunity to fix this, you know, like we actually get to be the generation that fixes this. What an incredible legacy we get to build um, to celebrate that, you know, and to make sure that that's the energy that you're showing up with. It makes such a big difference than somebody who's doom and gloom and pessimistic. And, you know, there there is plenty of data out there and plenty of reasons, but that is not actually going to change the situation. So thinking about ways that you can collaborate. Um, but really, I think one of the most important is just don't be afraid to start small. You know, we just need to start. I love so much that this is part of your message because this is also a similar approach that I have too. And you're right. I think you're so right because when people feel defeated and doom and gloom, they're not, they're less inclined to do something about it. You know, mm -hmm. just kind of like throw up your hands, like, okay, well, I guess we're just, you know, we're, shit out of luck. And I guess there's nothing we can do. Um, but knowing that there's viable solutions and that they're very tangible and just approaching this with positivity and love and, and also remembering that the heart and the root of this is that we just want, um, we want everyone to be able to live long, healthy lives. And that to me is love, like taking care of yourself and feeding yourself, with, uh, body or sorry, feeding yourself with food that feeds your body and nourishes your body that is the the biggest act of self-love and self-care that you can do for yourself. And that really is, the, at least for me, like the driving of all of this for me is that I just want everyone to have access to food that is healthy and nourishing and is not going to cause them to have disease and, and die at an early age, you know? it's Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's so important because each one of us really does matter. And I think that's also part of it is that a lot of the messaging people hear is like, well, I don't matter. Like what difference can one person make? One person can actually make a huge difference. And if it's starting a book club or getting a movie night together or showing a film at your, your children's school, I mean, there is so much that needs to be done. And I promise that courage inspires courage and that every time somebody's brave enough to stand up and do something and it's, it inspires the next person to do something brave too. So it's finding that courage. Yeah, 
I love that so much. So before we go, I ask all of my guests this, what is, what, or what are some of your health non-negotiables? So I know you have four kids, you're really busy, you're working a lot, but what are, um, you know, what are two things that you do no matter what, no matter how, how busy you are to take care of your own health and take care of yourself? You know, water, I mean, I just think, you know, you can't underestimate how important it is for hydration and that, you know, the, the if you can't afford a water filter, whether it's a pitcher, you know, or something that actually is on your sink, um, those water filters are really important because as we've learned, the way we treat our farmland, you know, is all running into our water supply. So um, clean, high integrity water, wherever you can get it. Um, you know, I've made so many transitions as, as this girl that came out of Texas, you know, to where I am today and learning how to um, be more mindful of, of my footprint, you know, and, and how it lands on the planet. Um, and then I think, you know, for me, I mean, one of the most intolerable things was that recombinant bovine growth hormone being in our dairy and learning that we were the only developed country in the world that allowed it. The only developed country. I mean, Russia, China, India, across Europe, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, it just they, they completely all said we're not allowing this into our food supply. And when I learned that, I thought, you know, I never want this to, to, to touch the house again. And um, so that was something that was, that was a non-negotiable early on. And then um, the artificial colors, again, you know, when I learned that that contributes to all this hyperactivity in kids, when I had, you know, four young children, I thought, gosh, get the stuff out. And it was fascinating to really conduct that in real time with these four young children that I had, because you could really, you could really actually see the impact. And the science there is so compelling that our own food companies remove those artificial ingredients voluntarily from the products that they sell overseas. So, you know, it was really those really, really deep, intense double standards that those were the first steps that I took. And then, you know, it really gets personal beyond that. You know, there's this tension between meat and plant and, you know, animals are required for healthy soil because of the manure that comes out of them and the way their hoofs hit the soil. And so it's not as absolute as people want it to be. And so my advice is what you do choose to eat, you know, make sure it's the cleanest, highest integrity in that category. So if you are a meat eater, you know, look for grass fed stuff, look for stuff that hasn't been treated with growth hormones and, and different feeds. And if you're plant-based, look for organic and things that haven't been treated with dozens of pesticides. So, you know, it really is um, an education for all of us to embrace um, and recognizing that it's ongoing. You know, the more we learn, the more we continue to learn and um, don't beat yourself up in that process, you know, that we are all on this learning curve together and it's not going to happen overnight. So give yourself permission, you know, to participate and, and learn as you go. Yeah. Yeah. I love reminding people of that. I mean, cause you know, no one knows like what my journey is or what your journey has looked like. I mean, people probably look at me now and they're like, Oh, she has it so dialed in. She eats so healthy, but you know, this, I mean, 12 years ago, I was, um, you know, in college eating fast food and like not taking care of myself at all. And it was, all the little baby steps over the years, learning different things, taking different things out of my diet. It did not at all happen overnight. No. It took me a long time. To yeah. Place. And I think it's important for people to, to recognize that, you know, like most things we've learned in life don't happen overnight, whether it's a kid learning how to ride a bike or an adult learning how to play the guitar, it does not happen overnight. And the same thing here, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, so, you know, do the things that you know you can stick with, you know, hydration is huge. I mean, that one to me is just huge. Um, so stick with that, you know, and then beyond it's, you know, if there's something that you eat absolutely every single day, you know, definitely that would be a good place to start. Make sure that's the highest integrity that you can afford because, you know, it matters. Yeah, it really does. I love that so much. So for everyone listening, where can they find you online? Well, thank you so much, Courtney. I mean, they can find me at robinobrien.com and then importantly, replantcapital.com is the work that we're doing really, you know, this important work today with this amazing team and having done so much of the work for so long by myself, the joy I have in working with this team that is just amazing every day has been so much fun. Um, and we really are, you know, engaging and transitioning stuff at scale, which is super exciting. Um, and then, you know, The Unhealthy Truth is a book, I mean, 
it was such a personal journey. And, you know, as I, as I speak through that and you hear my voice through that, you understand, you know, that it's coming from this place of, oh my gosh, how did this happen? It's not preachy. It's not a place of fear. And for a lot of people that are beginning the journey, it really is a good place to start. It's also a really good resource for people who, um, have naysayers around them. And so is that TED Talk, you know, the TED Talk people like, oh my gosh, I shared this with my parents and then they totally got it. Or, you know, my wife didn't get it and now she does. Um, but again, I think it's sharing this information as a gift that it truly is. It's such a gift, you know, with a humility of saying, you know what, like there was zero, you know, I'm the last person that I thought would be doing this. And, um, then I think people are much more open to receiving, you know, if they feel like they're being leveraged or using fear or, you know, preached at, I mean, most of us shut down. So, you know, just sharing the information for the gift that it is, I think is, is an important, is an important way to do it. Yeah, I fully agree. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to add all of that, your Ted talk, your website, everything is shown out so that people can find it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Real Foodology podcast. If you liked this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let me know. This is a resident media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Chris McCone. The theme song is called Heaven by the amazing singer Georgie, spelled with a J. Love you guys so much. See you next week.